baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. When you think about the U.S.-China relationship these days, what probably first comes to mind would be things like tariffs, tense trade talks, and high-stakes political wrangling. But the great halls of power aren't the only places where international relations play out. There's also the smaller venues, the American universities that enroll Chinese students, the real estate projects that receive Chinese investment, and the high-tech companies sharing talent across the Pacific. I'm Keith Menconi, this is KCBS In-Depth, and today's guest points out that while the lion's share of our attention right now is going towards understanding how a few very important people living in Washington and Beijing are getting along, there's a whole lot more to international relations than that. And what's more, a lot of the most interesting things taking place are actually happening right here in California. That guest is Matt Sheehan, an Oakland-based journalist who has also reported from China. His new book, out this very week, is The Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. Matt Sheehan, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks so much for having me. So, a little bit of background on where this interview is coming from. I was originally looking for a guest that could talk to us about how this uh, seemingly never-ending trade spat, now apparently escalating trade spat, might be impacting the Bay Area. And I was looking for the right guest to say something that we haven't already heard because we've been covering this for months and months and months. So what else is there to say? And then I stumbled across your book, which I think makes a very excellent and timely point that very few people are pointing out right now. That is that when we are only talking about international relations in terms of these very uh, high-level state visits and in terms of how one state leader is getting along with another head of state, we're actually leaving out a lot of the very most important things that happen in international relations. So I think that's a great point to make. And uh, let's start out this interview. Make that point to us. Why, what are we missing there? Sure. Um, I think for a long time, the U.S.-China relationship was a very high-level only thing. It was Nixon and Mao. It was Kissinger and Zhou Enlai. Or in the 90s, as the economic relationship grew, the trade relationship grew, it was you know, Fortune 500 CEOs setting up factories. We're just exchanging, we're exchanging goods. China is buying U.S. Treasury bonds. But everything's happening at a high level and, and at a distance. And one of the biggest changes in that relationship over the past decade is it really came down to the grassroots level. You started having high volumes of Chinese students enrolling at U.S. universities. You had Chinese home buyers coming to California specifically, but all over the U.S. and buying homes, moving into neighborhoods. You had the technology relationship and the relationship between Hollywood and China just growing exponentially. And what that did is it brought the relationship down to a more face-to-face, -face, a more personal level. And I call this type of relationship grassroots diplomacy, grassroots superpower diplomacy. And it's really happening on an unprecedented scale. And California happens to be the epicenter of it. California is the top destination for Chinese students, Chinese investors, Chinese home buyers, technologists, filmmakers, pretty much across all the categories. It's happening here in California. And so that really, I think, changes the nature of the relationship in some way. And 
it leads to a lot of new possibilities. It can be very synergistic and seeing really interesting culture smashes when you put these two people face to face, but it also leads to a lot of new tensions. Chinese students arriving on UC campuses in large numbers, there's going to be some friction there. And across all the dimensions that I looked at, you saw that tension in some way between high hopes and, and new possibilities, but also new kinds of frictions that were growing and that now in many ways have gone national. And that kind of hints at one of the terms that's in the very title of your book, Trans-Pacific Experiment. So what do you mean by this term, Trans-Pacific Experiment, and what does that have to do with California? So I define the Trans-Pacific Experiment as the largest ever experiment in grassroots superpower diplomacy. We just talked about grassroots diplomacy and what that means. When we think of it as an experiment, I call it that because it's, it's really unprecedented. It started to take off in the wake of the financial crisis. And so many of these categories, so many of these sectors were growing, the interactions were growing at such a rapid rate. And we really didn't know how they would play out. Is say, Chinese impact on real estate? Is it going to be you know, subsidizing a lot of affordable housing here in the Bay Area? Or is it just going to be driving up home prices in the suburbs and places like my hometown? Chinese Which student, is Palo Alto, by the way. Palo Alto, shout out. Um, you know, Chinese students arriving on US campuses, on California campuses specifically, is this going to lead to some really great sort of cultural fusion as Chinese and American young people kind of get together and come to understand each other? Or is it going to lead to more tensions as, say, the two groups, sometimes when they get closer together, they don't necessarily get along any better? And so the experiment, as I define it, the Trans-Pacific Experiment, is all of these interactions playing out and formulating and leading to really unexpected results in many ways. I think a lot of the current tensions that we're seeing at a national level have grown out of some of these interactions and stuff that many people thought was uh, positive or opening up new doors at the very beginning has in some ways turned negative and some of the very negative stuff that we saw at the very beginning has in other ways turned positive. That's why I call it the Trans-Pacific Experiment. All right. So still a lot of questions to be seen and where this is all heading. And we're going to dig into a couple of the themes that you explore in your book, including education, real estate, the tech sector, all areas in which California and China are interacting right now. Uh, last little bit of sage setting, uh, stage setting that I want to do before we get into that, though, is another interesting point that you make is that California, in a lot of ways, has what people in China want. What is it that California has that folks in China want? Yeah, California, by sort of its very nature, what it's good at, what it offers, it has what a lot of Chinese families are looking for, it has what a lot of Chinese companies are looking for, and it has a lot of what the Chinese government is looking for too, so kind of on all these different levels. For families, it's often as straightforward as clean air, a good environment, a large Chinese community, good Chinese food even. For companies, a lot of them who are looking to sort of expand their reach globally, maybe learn from the innovation ecosystem here in Silicon Valley, or get involved in stuff like green energy and green investment. California is kind of the epicenter of a lot of booming industries that China wants a part of. And for the Chinese government, some of their very highest priorities involve technological innovation, it involves uh, cultural soft power, the ability to produce a global culture that sort of tells China's story in one way or another. And down in Hollywood, that's obviously the epicenter of sort of global mainstream popular culture. And so at all these levels, it's it's a destination. It's California probably has the best brand of any state in China. It's got a great reputation and 
that's it's leveraged that a lot in conducting this trans-Pacific experiment. Yeah, and I can definitely attest to that brand myself. I lived for uh, a number of years in Asia during my 20s. And everywhere you went, you people would ask you where you're from, and you would say, I'm from the U.S., and they'd be like, yeah, but where are you from? And they weren't satisfied until you got down to California, and then some people weren't even satisfied until you got down to San Francisco. So people in Asia are, are startlingly aware of what's going on here in California. And we can talk a little bit more about the significance of that brand awareness, so to speak. Uh, but first, I want to remind our listeners once again that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. Today, we are speaking to Matt Sheehan about his new book, The Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. It's a very interesting relationship to look at, especially in this time of escalated high-level tensions between uh Beijing and Washington, D.C., but your your book reveals that there's a lot more to that relationship, as we've been saying, than just uh, the bare-bones politics of it all. And I want to start, one of the major themes of your book is how China is interacting with California in the real estate sector. And I want to start there, because this is actually part of partly where your reporting journey and all this started. It started in uh, Palo Alto, and your noting of some Chinese buyers coming out to, to look at homes in your hometown of Palo Alto. So tell us a little bit about that, and uh, we'll, we'll see where we go from there. Sure thing. Yeah. Um, for me, this journey started in many ways uh, back in 2013. I was living in China at the time, but sort of uh, stranded back home because I'd broken my ankle, and I, I had some visa problems over there. You had been in China earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I'd been in China for the three years prior to that. And just as I was starting to become a journalist and starting to put some clippings together, I, I broke my ankle and I thought, you know, oh man, all these stories that I've been following over there, the language skills I've been building up, I'm going to be back in Palo Alto, I'm kind of going to lose it all. And then I realized that China's stories, a lot of the same threads and trends that I was following over there were suddenly showing up back here. So one of the first ones I noticed, like you mentioned, was uh, Chinese home buyers, specifically in my hometown of Palo Alto. It was, uh, I noticed it was a story in the Palto Weekly, I believe, about these luxury home buying tours, luxury bus home buying tours. So Chinese tourists or immigrants or families would come over to California, to the Bay Area, and they'd sign up with a local real estate agency that would sort of put a bunch of them onto a bus, a really nice bus, and take them around to different homes in Palo Alto and Menlo Park and just kind of do like a a little shopping spree, a little uh, stop by five, six houses, have you know hors d'oeuvres and, and wine, and try to sell it to them. And it was really a phenomenon in Palo Alto at the time. And so the, the interest in homes in that region, I, I guess it's just a little bit remarkable that the interest in homes in that region was to such a great extent uh, from China that they had to get like an organized industry around that to kind of capture and, and capitalize on that. Yeah, you had some local real estate agencies really placing their bets on it and, and having those bets pay off for them. Um, the Palo Alto, you know, California has incredible name recognition and brand in China, but Palo Alto specifically has. Uh, oh, really? Had, yeah, it was. I was shocked when I went over there and people knew the name of my like dinky little hometown. Oh man! Because I'm from Milpitas, I never had that problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the I think that Chinese families they put a lot of. Um, they put a lot of stock in kind of rankings and lists and what is the best of everything. And mm -hmm. so Stanford, you know, that's yeah. up there. Right next to Google, that's up there. Facebook, mm -hmm. they kind of know these big names and big brands. They know Steve Jobs. He's very popular and well-known mm -hmm. in China. 
and to know that, you know, Steve Jobs' house is here. Some of the, I, I've even taken Chinese tourists just to stop by his home and have them take pictures outside. And so, you know, kind of, the, <laughs> really? yeah, the more, the more you zoom in from California to the Bay Area to Palo Alto specifically, it really, um, the interest is, is, is very high. It's, it's almost incredible. And especially with the good schools down there, some of the schools that I went to growing up, um, there's obviously a lot of inf- impact of the education system and how mm. much Chinese parents want to get their kids into a more free thinking but still rigorous school. So back in 2013, I basically I tagged along on one of these bus tours. I just kind of like, you know, uh, wrote to them, asked to join in one. I was the only non-Chinese or Taiwanese person there. And we just went from house to house. And I, I watched how they were kind of taking it in, what their plans were. A lot of the time it was maybe a, a husband, wife, and a kid. But the husband's planning on maybe buying the house, but he still lives in China and works there while uh, his wife and his kid are in Palo Alto. And maybe he'll fly in occasionally. Maybe they'll just buy the house and leave it empty, which is one of the things that led to a lot of frictions with neighbors. And... Yeah, this was kind of my first taste of this whole trans-Pacific world. And from there, I just expanded out, looked at Chinese investment in uh, real estate more broadly and all these other sectors. And so here we're already running into one of the themes that you hinted at earlier, that there is some interest and there is some interaction and there is some promise in this interaction. But at the same time, there's also some friction that emerges because, as uh, you said, this isn't perhaps the type of immigration that we're more accustomed to thinking about, somebody from a relatively less affluent place coming here and trying to start up a life. These are relatively affluent people coming to Palo Alto and either just this is a place to park some money and and make an investment or this is a sometimes home. This is a way to further this or that goal. So how how has that been playing out over the last uh, several years during your reporting? Yeah, I, I found that across, specifically in, in the real estate and immigration space, but across a lot of sectors where I discovered that it really, really changes how we react to people from other countries, whether immigrants or students, how we feel sort of at a national level, how we feel about our relationship to that country, and at what level are these people entering U.S. society. You know, Palo Alto is a place with tons of lawn signs, you know, immigrants are welcome here, all are welcome here, all that kind of stuff. And when people put those up, they're usually thinking of immigrants from Central America, people who are maybe fleeing violence. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of openness to that, a lot of willingness to try to take in, you know, your poor, your tired, your huddled masses. But when the immigrants come in, and maybe they're even wealthier than the local people, when they are not necessarily kind of coming here to like live out their American dream. This is, instead of this being the sort of beginning of their up by your bootstrap story, this is actually the payoff for having an up by your bootstrap story in another country. Mm-hmm. And when immigrants like that enter US society, people react in a very different way. And you know there are parts of it that are very understandable when it comes to, you know you don't want a bunch of empty houses on your block. And then there are parts of it that, you know, veer a little more into, uh, some of the rhetoric that can be kind of uncomfortable when it comes to, you know, those Chinese people doing this or that. And so, yeah, the, uh, every one of these areas, it, it becomes very nuanced and tricky. And in some ways, by looking at how we react to China in various sectors, we kind of like also learn about ourselves, learn about how we feel about our own position in the world, how secure we are in many of our own institutions. And, and the interactions with China kind of put a magnifying glass on that. Really complicated. Yeah. So that covers a little bit, uh, just scratching the surface. There's obviously a lot more to talk about there in the real estate sector. 
a number of other areas that we want to touch on, so we're going to keep moving. Let's uh, look next at education. Now, this is a very rich area of interaction. Obviously, we would really welcome with open arms the opportunity to have scholars from both countries get a chance to get to know one another, uh, interact with each other's learnings and experience and research. What has this interaction been looking like uh, in the course of your reporting with so many Chinese students coming to live and study here in California? Sure. The, over the past 20, 30 years, uh, China has always been a large source of international students. But the different was, difference was that in the past, it was largely Chinese sort of technical PhD students, really like the cream of the crop of Chinese universities coming over here to pursue advanced degrees. And once those people got their advanced degrees, they oftentimes stayed in the U.S. long term. They tried to set up sort of a middle class life here. The change really happened starting around 2007, 2008, when you started to see a lot more Chinese undergrads coming onto U.S. campuses. And that was partly the result of some push from China and partly the result of some pull from the U.S. The push from China was just a, a growing middle class that suddenly saw the opportunity to send their kids abroad and said, you know, wow, we don't necessarily want them to have to struggle through the very difficult Chinese education system. We want to go them to go somewhere that's a little more free thinking. It's a little more sort of uh, liberal in its education methods. And so you had this you had this push and pull from both sides. And the result was a huge takeoff in the number of Chinese students at U.S. universities, specifically here in California, but also in places like Illinois, Iowa, lar basically large state schools across the country. And yeah, it's another one where you see this kind of double-edged sword of things where there is a lot of hope that like, wow, we're going to have the, the next generation of China and the next generation of the U.S. interacting face-to-face, -face, learning from each other, and it's going to you know have great effects long-term. And I think we have seen a lot of that positive stuff play out. Um, you know, I've personally, I've hung out with a lot of Chinese university students. You really see sometimes their, their, their minds kind of opening up to new possibilities, whether it's about how they think about like LGBT or queer issues or just their own relationship to their families and recognizing what it means to be a, a relatively independent young person. But on the sort of political, ideological level, it hasn't always gone as planned. There's been locally some backlash against the number of Chinese students coming in with, you know, California families, California students saying, like, are these, you know, are these Chinese students basically coming in to sort of replace us to take our seats in the university system? Are, 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 is admission to places like UC Berkeley starting to be like auctioned off to the highest bidder or is it still a system that's really for Californians in some way? And increasingly tensions at sort of the national level where you have people like the head of the FBI and others warning against espionage, uh, intellectual property theft that might come from Chinese students in advanced degree programs. And recently we've seen a series of steps, kind of a crackdown on visas for Chinese students in high level STEM fields. So it's, it's another one of those situations where you have a, a very like dualistic set of outcomes where I see, you know, at the ground level, I see tons of really positive and, and, you know, kind of fun stuff happening when you put a lot of Chinese and Americans together. But it also has this counterweight to it. It also leads to some misunderstandings and just greater tensions. Uh, yeah, some greater tensions, and we're going to get into that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners one last time that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. 
Today we're speaking to Matt Sheehan. He's an Oakland-based author and journalist. His new book is The Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. And as you're hearing, that term experiment is there because a lot of this stuff, we don't know how it's going to go. There's still a lot of open questions. You know, I'm honestly having a little bit of a hard time not asking more follow-up questions to a lot of the great points that you're raising because there's really just uh, so much interesting stuff there. But uh, this book is really jam-packed and there's more that we want to get to. So we're just going to have to leave that topic and uh, keep on moving, unfortunately. Um, I want to get next to uh, the tech industry. Obviously, we've sort of been uh, referring to this throughout the conversation. But this has there's been a lot of symbiotic relationship between American tech companies, Chinese tech companies, but perhaps even more so in tech talent making its way across the Pacific and working in in, in both companies. Uh, and here again, uh, I think it would be fair to say there has been plenty of productive collaboration, but a lot of bad feelings along the way uh, as well. Yeah, this is Silicon Valley. The relationship between Silicon Valley and China is one of the most complex, one of the most currently fraught, but also really one of the most important elements of the U.S.-China relationship today. I think when you look at what we're currently calling a trade war, at the center of a lot of that is tensions over technology. And this is, we've gotten to this place through kind of a a long journey. You had, for a long period of time, China was very much looking to the U.S. for talent, for money, for ideas. You'd have a lot of uh, a lot of the biggest internet companies in China were founded by people who had spent time in the U.S. in the 90s, went back home and sort of kick-started their internet. And then you had a period of sort of copycat competition where you had a lot of Chinese companies that were basically sort of based on an American counterpart, a company like Baidu sort of competing with Google or a company like Alibaba competing with eBay and then Amazon. And in the period of time that I cover in the book, we came into this really new and interesting phase. I call it Silicon Valley's China paradox. It's this period of time, roughly 2010 to 2017, when you had incredible density of flows of people, of money, and of ideas. You had Chinese venture capital investors showing up in Silicon Valley. You had Chinese engineers kind of bouncing back and forth between the places. Even Silicon Valley uh, top executives taking the helm at Chinese companies. But the thing that While these flows sort of at the slightly lower levels were incredibly rich and dense, the one thing that couldn't make the leap into each other's markets was the companies. Google, Facebook, Twitter, all these big-time American internet companies were outright blocked in China, and the Chinese companies couldn't really make inroads in the U.S. market. So you had this kind of tension building in some ways, where we have such rich interactions at the lower levels, but at the high level of companies and markets, they just can't quite crack each other's ecosystems. Right. And probably a great way to illustrate this would just be to ask the average American, think of a Chinese brand. And there's a few probably very famous ones that we could all talk about, but it would be hard to crack five. Absolutely. Absolutely. We had this period of time with all these interactions. And what we're seeing right now, uh, sort of in tandem with the trade war, in some ways driving the trade war, is an attempt to really disentangle these two ecosystems, to pull them apart, to Mm. say... We no longer want, and when I say we no longer want, I mean mostly policymakers in Washington, D.C., we, mo- we no longer want uh, Chinese students to be coming over here, acquiring skills and going back to China, or we no longer want U.S. companies to be setting up research labs over there to try to draw on Chinese talent over there. We don't want Chinese investment in Silicon Valley companies, and we don't want Silicon Valley companies investing in China. And be- because of the potential for technology leakage? 
potential for technology leakage or just sort of straight up competition, the ability to the idea that China is kind of reliant on the U.S. to derive a lot of its innovative ideas. And so there's this attempt to really pull the two ecosystems apart and turn what was a very sort of dynamic interactive relationship into more like bare knuckle competition, very a very zero sum mentality when it comes mm. to technology competition. And broadly speaking, we call this decoupling, decoupling the two ecosystems, pulling them apart and hoping that that helps the U.S. in the long run. But I think that's that's a very fraught process. And there's going to be a lot of knock on effects in a lot of different industries, whether it's talent, whether it's the ideas that we now sometimes learn from China and Chinese companies or whether it comes to sort of broader technology governance, the ability to, to set up some shared norms and systems and institutions that are going to govern technology as it kind of takes over more and more parts of our lives. Hmm. All right. So a couple of themes that we're going to have to skip over for the sake of this conversation. We haven't even touched on the politics of a lot of the immigrants that have come over uh, to California, that some of them are leaning a lot more conservative than previous waves of immigrants from China. So that's very interesting. You also touch on the entertainment industry and the interaction between Hollywood and China. Also, as as a watcher of Chinese cinema, I find that very interesting. And uh, the green tech industry, a lot of uh, interesting interactions going on there as well. So a whole lot more in this book, which, by the way, uh, once again, is uh, out this week. A whole lot more in there for people to talk about. But uh, we're going to have to sort of uh, wrap things up. And uh, to do that, I want to focus on one of the major themes of your book. We've been talking about it throughout the course of this conversation, this notion that sometimes familiarity actually breeds contempt. It's uh, sort of the expectation that when we go off to another country, we're going to learn tolerance and we're going to learn to all love one another. But sometimes that kumbaya moment never really comes. And we find instead a lot of the friction points, a lot of the things that are really different uh, and and uh, how, how some of our expectations are not really um, being met. So for the average Californian, what should we expect for the years ahead? I mean, is this an, a relationship that's going to come closer together? Is this something that we should be fostering and, and, and hopeful about? What do you expect to come? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this period of time has been in the U.S.-China relationship broadly, it's been very tense. It leads to a lot of uncertainty. And there, there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of worry about the impact this will have on the U.S., whether our reaction to China will in some ways be self-destructive in certain areas. But despite all that, I still, when you really zoom in and look at this at the grassroots level, when you meet the Chinese students who are here on campus, when you talk to the Chinese immigrants who are just trying to get their kids in a, in a better school and able to breathe some clean air, I still think that there's a lot of potential there. And there's a lot of really interesting cultural fusions that continue to happen. And so while things look very sort of dark and stormy at a national level, and even at a local level, obviously, there are tensions, I'd still uh, encourage Californians in all sectors to, to really reach out to try to get to know the Chinese folks who might be at your university, in your neighborhood, anywhere along the way. And while, no, it won't all be some kumbaya moment at the end, I do hope that at the very least it'll lead to a little bit greater understanding of where the other people are coming from, recognizing that in so many cases when we put just sort of a national label on people, those are Chinese people, we're Americans, things can feel very standoffish. But when you really meet them and get to know them or when they meet us and get to know us, 
you see that this is, we're, we're all reacting to the same sort of human motivations in a lot of cases. And I, yeah, I just hope that people keep sort of an open mind and keep on working at it. Keep on trying to build this relationship and make it productive. All right. And that's an excellent point to leave things off on for today. One last time, we have been speaking today to Matt Sheehan. His new book is The Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. And we are going to keep an eye on how that collaboration and competition continue in the years ahead. Matt Sheehan, thanks so much. Thank you. And remember, you can find past episodes of KCBS In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.